So now I'd ask that you please stand and join me in the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading from Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit and has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. It's nice to see all of you. It is a lovely day. So nice to have the cool in the morning and then warming up. Fall is here. I say this every week. Mark is written for disciples. That's what this book is all about. It's all about how to follow in the way of Jesus in good times, in bad times, in confusing times. And so it's so appropriate that we get to tune in every single week to recalibrate ourselves, our minds, our hearts to the way of Jesus, and so we're doing that again this morning. Now, the story we just read is not just another story about demonic oppression. It's not just another story about the power of Jesus over demonic power, though it is that, but it's actually a lesson about faith. Mark underscores faith or faithfulness as a central and abiding theme of his gospel. And we haven't really focused on this so much, but we are going to be talking about this today. Remember from the very beginning of Mark's narrative, Jesus starts by proclaiming this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is here or at hand. Repent and give faithfulness, give faith believe in the gospel. And now this proclamation of Jesus sets the stage for Jesus' kingdom of God demonstration as seen in the healings, the miracles, and the exorcisms, and so on and so forth, and eventually through Jesus' death and resurrection. 
in each miracle in Mark's narrative, it is made clear that it is only after or in response to faith that Jesus displays his marvelous power. On the other hand, Jesus expresses complete astonishment at the lack of faith exhibited by many. So the overall picture that we get from Mark's gospel is that faith or faithfulness, though absent in much of Israel, is the essential posture for discipleship to Jesus. I'll say that again. From Mark's point of view, the overall picture we get is that faith or faithfulness is the essential posture for discipleship to Jesus. Now, it needs to be mentioned as well that this whole section from chapter 8, verse 27, where Jesus first mentions his suffering, his being handed over to the religious leaders all the way through to chapter 10, verse 52, is concerned or is in light of Jesus' suffering. This whole section should be seen or read in the shadow of the cross. And as you'll notice, that everything in this section is difficult. Maybe if you grew up in the church, you heard people talk about mountaintop experiences. As a junior higher and high schooler, uh, I was involved in a church that went to camp up in the mountains. And for us, we had to go up to San Bernardino, the top there. And, and it was a three-hour drive, but a big part of it, you know, you drive almost vertical up this mountain. And so we would often talk about that experiences at camp, God meeting with us, the Spirit doing a, a unique thing. And so we'd often talk about it as a, a mountaintop experience. You know, oh, you know, I was there on the mountaintop, but now we're going back down to the valley but it actually is true in this story. We actually have that contrast. Something amazing, something incredible has happened there on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, which is the disciples have seen the resurrected, victorious Lord. They have seen his body in its glory. And now as they come down the mountain, everything is difficult. Everything is dark. Demonic forces are impenetrable. Disciples are faithless and powerless. They are argumentative. The needy despair of hope. Everything in this section, as I said, is to be seen in the shadow of the cross. And yet, and yet, in spite of that, Jesus still expects faith. He's still looking for faith. Even in, in light of all of these roadblocks, disappointments, where is faith, Jesus wonders. And so, as I said, this passage is really not about the demoniac. It's not really about the power of Jesus, but it's about faith. It's about faithfulness. And it's about faithfulness in Jesus' disciples. That's why they are so prominent in the story. We find them arguing with the scribes in verses 14 and 15. We find them unable to do anything to help the father and his demoniac son in verse 18. And finally, we find them in the debrief. They're being instructed in the cause of their failure in verses 20 and 28. This is a story about discipleship and about the essential need of faith. 
and followers of Jesus. So let's look at it together. So first of all, I just want to consider Jesus' statement about the faithless generation. Now, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, this story immediately follows the transfiguration on the mountaintop. And it seems that each writer wants to connect this story to Moses' return from his mountaintop encounter with God. Remember, we looked at this uh, last week. There, uh, six days later, it says that Jesus ascends the mountain. And there we have a theophany. And it's taking us back to Exodus where Moses was called up to the mountain of God to receive the law. Well, we're still riding on that theme. And now it's following how Moses descended the mountain. And do you remember what Moses found when he came down the mountain? Does anybody remember what he found? Was Israel worshiping God? Were they being faithful? No. Moses found a golden calf, is what he found. And he found that the children of Israel, though they had been graciously rescued by God through a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he found they had already broken faith with Yahweh. And so this is supposed to be very similar. Mark is dropping again these hints, these keys, connecting faithless disciples to faithless Israel. Upon returning, Jesus finds the disciples arguing with the scribes. And being informed concerning what the commotion is all about, the disciples powerless over the demon, Jesus responds, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Now remember, Jesus has already used this term identifying the religious leaders. They were a generation that go astray in their hearts. They were a generation who were hard-hearted, who were blind to God's ways. Remember, he is taking us back to Psalm 95. Well, here, once again, Jesus is now bringing up that same generation again, but he's saying that disciples, his followers, are indistinguishable from the religious leaders. They are indistinguishable from unfaithful Israel. They look like everyone else. They do not stand out. But I think that the faithlessness of the disciples is really only the surface understanding of what's going on. We know, we talked about that Mark was written for the early church as a discipleship manual. Teachings in how to follow Jesus as his disciple. Because of that, many see this as a challenge to Mark's audience. Let's look at it this way. If the transfiguration is a picture of the resurrection, the descending of the mountain to return to disciples is a picture of the return or the second coming of Christ. And yet the scene is totally disastrous. Disciples are found arguing. They're found powerless in the face of demonic attack. They are powerless to incredible human need and suffering. There is no faith or dependence on Jesus. There's no identity with Jesus. Only the powerlessness of human self-reliance. That's what Jesus finds. We might remember that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a series of parables, and in the middle, he puts forth this searching question. He says, when the Son of Man comes, speaking of the second coming, will he find faith or faithfulness on the earth? 
And this is a question I believe that each generation of the church must ask. Are we being faithful to Jesus? Are we with Him? Or are we indistinguishable from the world? And that's nuanced. It's not just like there's one label for what worldliness looks like. It's very nuanced. But are we with Him? Do we share an identity with Him? Do outsiders know us as Jesus people? People of the way of Jesus. This is a warning passage to disciples in every generation. How will he find us when he returns? Will he find us arguing and being divisive, powerless to the works of darkness, powerless to human need and suffering? Or will he find us full of faith, continuing his mission of making the kingdom of God and its power known? Is that how he will find us? I I pray that he will. I hope that in my life that that's what he will find. So implicit in this account, the first part of this, is that Jesus' followers are expected to have full faith, faithfulness to him and his power, even in his absence, and that we, the church, must continue the ministry of Jesus in the same power that he manifested. Now, there's a second thing that I think we need to look at in the story, and that is the negative or residual effects of faithlessness. Sadly, we see in this passage that the disciples' lack of power and faith has actually affected this man. It's affected his faith in Jesus' power and authority. Jesus, again, has not been properly represented by his disciples in his absence. Again, the disciples are argumentative, faithless, powerless in the face of demonic oppression, human suffering. We never find this with Jesus, ever. The boy's condition is so dire, it's incredibly dark and hopeless. The father comes in total desperation for the state of his son and is tragically disappointed with what he receives. So much so that when Jesus shows up, the man wonders if Jesus can do anything, anything to help him. Help us if you can, the man says. That should should cause us shock. Wow. What has happened here? How many times has the church, have disciples of Jesus, hindered people from coming to Jesus, hindered people from trusting in and seeing his cleansing, healing power? I think sadly, we often find the same dissension, bickering, argumentative spirit in the church as we do in the world. And oftentimes what we find is the church has been powerless to demonic power and human need. This is an incredible misrepresentation of the king and the kingdom. Michael Goheen, he talks about the church in the West and kind of his diagnosis of what has happened over time. But he says the church of the West often fails to live up to its high calling because it is hamstrung by a low spiritual state of the church. A lukewarm love for Christ 
a sickly worldliness and a lack of vital prayer. I wonder if Michael Goheen was reading Mark chapter 9 when he wrote that. It has all the same components. He says the reason for this is because we have a self-satisfaction that comes from comfort. In so many ways we have compromised with consumerism. The comfort and the spirit of the age. We are indistinguishable from the culture, indistinguishable from the world. And so just like the world, we are powerless to the forces of darkness. We are powerless to the incredible human need all around us. But thankfully, this story does not end there. For we know that our Lord Jesus is full of both compassion and power. And so being informed of the failure of the disciples, Jesus calls the Father, bring him to me. Bring him to me. You know, so many times in in my pastoring, walking with many who have just feel that they are completely done with Christianity and the misrepresentation of Jesus, I have often done exactly this. What about Jesus? Okay, yeah, we've talked about the church and we've talked about the issues that go on in the church, the abuse of power, the scandals, um, the compromise. We've talked about all that, and I get that too. But what about Jesus? And I love that in this story, this young man is brought to Jesus. And I think that that is the task of the church when it really comes down to it. Our task is is to bring people to Jesus and that we would live lives in such a way that we can bring people to Jesus. Through the way that we speak, through our posture, through our actions, that we can bring people to Jesus. And I love that this is what happens in the story. It's not the end of the story. Jesus says, bring him to me. Now, so far in this gospel, things have been relatively easy and positive in Jesus' ministry and in Jesus' healings. The movement has been uh, kind of at this upward swing, continually picking up momentum. Jesus is popular with the crowds. He's hugely successful among the multitudes. Things have come relatively easy, even in terms of faith. You remember the story of the woman who just reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, and she's healed instantaneously. It's easy. It's simple. But not for this man in this situation. Faith is hard. And as I said, this section is to be read in the shadow of the cross. Disciples now with this news about what it means to follow Jesus, that it means that each of us must take up our cross and follow him, that the way to victory is not onward and upward, but it is downward and it is a way of suffering. This brings discouragement. This makes faith hard. It makes faith difficult. It is no longer simple. It is a struggle. And how many times have we used this father's exact words to describe our own journey? I can say of myself, many times I have had to pray this prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief. Lord, I believe you can heal in a moment, in an instant. 
Help me overcome my unbelief. Lord, I believe that you are good. In spite of what I see, help me overcome my unbelief. Lord, I believe that you are sovereign and in control. I believe. Help my unbelief. What appropriate words for the church when things seem out of control and we are uncertain of what the Lord is doing. I encourage you, church, make this part of your repertoire of prayers. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. After explaining for the second time his son's condition, the man says, have mercy on us. And help us if you can. Now I'm thankful for the NLT. Because I think that this is the only translation that does this well. But it translates this situation here exactly as it should be read in the Greek. Jesus responds almost with a question. Back, he throws the man's statement back at him. If I can... And I imagine, I don't know what you think about Jesus and what his personality was like, but I think he was someone who was humorous. I think that he loved irony. I think that he liked to, uh, in a playful way, mess with people. <laughs> we see this with him and the religious leaders. Of course, he's full of compassion. We know from Isaiah he's a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. But I believe here in this moment, Jesus must have had a huge smile on his face. If I can, if I can do anything, oh, how funny. How strange that this is what this man pleads to Jesus. If you can do anything. See, again, this is Mark's moment of who is Jesus. Jesus is the one who holds all things together, Paul tells us in Colossians, by the word of his power. He is the one that spoke all things into being. This is the one who this man is talking to. And he says, oh, please have mercy on us and help us if you can. And what Jesus wants to communicate to this man and what he wants to communicate to us, church, is that the problem does not lie with the power of God. The problem never lies with the power of God. No, God speaks a word and it is done. He brings death to life, chaos to order, purity to the defiled, wholeness to the broken. Jesus, as the king of the kingdom of God, possesses all the restorative power of God's good kingdom and has been clearly seen in the narrative so far. And so Jesus, in this moment, he throws this man's question back at him if I can no 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 all things are possible for those who believe what Jesus does in this moment is he calls for faith he calls for faithfulness on the father's part and it is audacious faith at that a faith that is placed in the limitless power of God. This isn't, as we can often read this statement, all things are possible for those who believe, like a Disney 
you know, little statement or, you know, something from like Frozen. Like we pick up these things all the time. What we find in our culture constantly is we have all the kingdom promises, but without the authority or the presence of the king. That is not what's happening here. This is not spiritual mumbo jumbo, positive thinking or anything like that. Jesus is calling for this man to give him everything he has, however weak it might be, to hand it over to Jesus. And so the father instantly cries out, I do believe. I do. I have something here. But help me overcome my belief. Now, what the heck does that even mean? I believe. Help my unbelief. Like Hudson has this thing that he says oftentimes. Never forget the first time he tried a massive cup of horchata that he poured. 16 ounces to the brim. We were going to have a taster. Nope, all the way. Taste it. What do you think? I kind of like it, kind of don't like it. Which meant, I don't want this. Like, (laughs) you drink it. That is not what's going on here, I don't think. I do believe, but help me overcome my belief. I believe that this is what's happening. This father gives to Jesus what he has but he also gives Jesus what he lacks. He gives everything to Jesus. This is what I have and this is what I lack. I give it into your hands. He turns himself over entirely. Broken, doubting, and believing. And he is not disappointed. And I don't believe that this story is just for this man. I believe that this story is for all who give themselves in the same way to Jesus. This is a picture, church, of what it means to have faith in or be faithful to Jesus. It means to give ourselves entirely to him. I give you my brokenness and my wholeness. I give you my belief and my unbelief. I give it all to you, entirely to you. I will hold nothing back. That, in Scripture, is what faithfulness is. It is not just mental assent. Oh, I believe that that's possible. Oh, yeah, I think that that might be a good idea. Oh, I agree. No, it is to give ourselves entirely, to give our allegiance to Jesus, to give him the whole of our focus, believing and unbelieving. I've thought often of that scene in the Old Testament where the army of Israel goes out to war and they are grossly outnumbered. And when they go out there, they have those who played songs of praise in the temple lead the way. But this is what happens. They pray to Yahweh and they say, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I think that is an incredible picture of what faith or faithless faithfulness is in scripture we don't know what to do that's not what faith is but our eyes are fixed on you all of our expectation all of our hope all of our doubt we're putting it on you and as i said the man is not disappointed the cleansing and healing of his son is entire and final 
Jesus says, listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Done. Finished. Over. The spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. And a murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. Just a side note, this is not in my notes. But could it be the way that this is described, what's going on, Jesus taking him by the hand and lifting him up, these are the same exact words that are used for Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Could it be that Mark is saying that this kind of faith is resurrection faith? Those who give themselves to Jesus, though they may die, they shall live, for he will take them by the hand and he will raise them on that day from the dead. What hope that this would give to the persecuted church living in the first century. With all the disappointments and obstacles that they face, impending a certain death. Be not afraid. The lion of the tribe of Judah is overcome. He has the keys of hell and death. Those who place their faith in him, he will take them by the hand and he will raise them up. Now as this scene ends, we have a debrief with the disciples. And what we find in the debrief is that prayerlessness is a sign of a lack of faith. So it says afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house... With his disciples, they asked him, Why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, This kind can be cast out only by prayer. Now, some of your translations might say, and fasting. It is believed that, or it is proven that the earliest, most reliable texts of Mark do not have fasting, but that this was added later, uh, especially with an influence from the Catholic Church on fasting. We don't have time to get into it this morning. But upon receiving the news of the disciples' inability to cast out the demon, Jesus speaks of the disciples' faithlessness. Faithless generation, how long will I be with you? But then later, when he's asked privately about it, Jesus says they could not cast out this demon because of a lack of prayer. So the question is, which one is it? And it would seem that what we see in this passage, Mark wants to emphasize that prayerlessness is evidence of self-confidence and a sign of not being dependent upon God. Now, let me just say... Hello? If I was on your end and I heard me say that, I'd be like, give me a break. How extreme. This is such religious talk. Because I don't pray, it's a sign that I don't actually believe in God. Well, what about all the other things that I do? Hear me out. Because I'm, I'm sure we would never, ever see it that way. I think we give ourselves a lot of grace when it comes to our prayer life. Oh, we're busy. I don't think about it. I'm distracted. I don't really know what to pray there's always this question too. I mean, does it really matter at the end of the day? I mean, God's just going to do what God's going to do, right? He's sovereign. Doesn't the Bible tell us that? And I mean, I'm just dust. I, I'm nobody. And, you know, we know that in the universe, we're, we're nothing to nothing to nothing. 
compared to God and his plan and all this. And so many times we give ourselves these excuses. Does my prayer really affect God's will? But listen, Jesus, our master and teacher, says the reason we don't pray is because we don't rely enough on God. We lack faith or faithfulness. Whether that is in God's goodness, in God's providential presence, or in God's power, or all the above, and our need day by day, moment by moment of this knowledge. See, the disciples in Jesus' absence had been tempted to believe that the gift they had previously received from Jesus, remember when he sent them out, he gave them authority to preach and to cast out demons. They believed it was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. This was a subtle form of unbelief, encouraging them to trust in themselves and their past experience rather than God. But... Previous success provides no guarantee of continued power. Previous success provides no guarantee of continued power. Now, I don't want for any moment us to walk away with this idea that I think I had growing up. That God's presence is where the church building is. And when I leave, I lose that presence. And so each week, I've got to come and rededicate my life, so to speak. I've got to receive the Spirit again. I need to receive power again. Or each time I sin, I lose the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. That is not what's being talked about here. We know that the Spirit has been given to the church. When we give our allegiance to Jesus, we are given a down payment of the Holy Spirit. This is evidence that we belong to God. This is His power, His presence his life at work in us to make us into new creation. So that is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about losing God. But we are talking about relying upon him and his power. We are talking about having all eyes on him, all hope in him. And I would ask how many of us are relying right now on past experience in our walk with Jesus. What worked previously rather than relying on fresh power and daily dependence on the Lord. We've talked about this at length in our gatherings. That what we put into our lives are the things that we will treasure, the, the places that are hearts will go, our minds will go, and so we've talked about our rhythms. We've talked about the priority of scripture and meditation and silence and prayer and dependence on the Lord, and I would ask this morning, where are you at in those rhythms and those priorities? Especially living right now, we are experiencing the continual Groundhog Day. And it's like, do I really need power for this? Nothing happens. Nothing changes. It's the same day after day after day. Do I really need fresh power for the same day that I live again and again and again? And the answer is yes, because the kingdom 
momentum has not stopped. God's mission has not stopped. God's desire for character to be built in you and the image of Christ to be built in you has not stopped. I would also add that the work of the devil and the demonic forces has not stopped. That the evil of the powers that be in our world, whether human or demonic, have not stopped. And so, yes, we need daily connection to the power and presence of our God. So much so because there are some among the church today who have become persuaded by the effectual power of politics, science, technology, economics, seeing that this is where the real power lies. We are indistinguishable from the world when it comes to our priorities, when it comes to our faith, faithfulness, or hopes. And this is evident by our neglect of prayer, scripture, the gospel, and the community of God's people as a prioritized practice and essential part of our life and a neglect of the whole way of Jesus' life. I believe that Mark is actually calling us after or in the shadow of the cross, he's calling us back to those rhythms of Jesus that were seen in the early chapters of Mark. Jesus gets away early in the morning and he prioritizes connection with the Father. Remember that? You guys remember that when we talked about that? All of these agendas are being thrown at Jesus. This is where he should go. This is what he should do. But after he spends an evening in prayer and meditation, present silence and solitude with the Father, he has total clarity on his identity and his purpose. He says, no, we must go on to the next, the next cities. For this reason I was sent to preach, to herald the kingdom of God. It brings to mind how Jesus taught disciples in the Lord's Prayer. Maybe we miss this. Give us this day our daily bread. It is present, active, daily dependence on God. His provision and kingdom power to be manifested in the world. This means that the life of discipleship of faithfulness, dependence on God is daily, it's personal and personable, it's also ad hoc, just as it comes. Where does your mind go when you are hit with news of tragedy, confrontation at work, things going on in your marriage or in your family? Where does your mind go? And if the last place that your mind goes is to prayer, I'd say that there is an issue of faithfulness. What am I ultimately looking to? What am I ultimately hoping in? What do I think is going to save me, rescue me, redeem me, sanctify me? What do I think is going to heal the brokenness in my life and in the lives of others around me? This passage tells us there is only one hope and it is the king and it's his kingdom. Jesus would say to any of us, if our last resort is prayer, oh Jesus, help me if you can. He says, if I can, all things are possible to those who believe. Where is our faith? 
Where is our faithfulness? In closing, as we leave from here, as we spend this week thinking about this message, what we've read previously, as we meet up with our discipleship groups and desire to live this out, I just have some thoughts I want to leave you with. And I've asked this already, but what are we ultimately looking to or trusting in? And I know right now there is so much distraction 24-7 news cycle, everyone is talking about politics, everyone is talking about the election or the Supreme Court. This is where all of our eyes are. And I get it, yeah, we should be concerned with these things, we should be involved in these things, but ultimately, we should be able to say, our eyes are on you, our eyes are on Jesus, our eyes are on the King and His Kingdom. Because this is where the true power of healing for our world and our culture and lives lie. So asking ourselves these questions, what are we ultimately looking for? Who are we trusting in? Where does the true power of healing for our world, our culture, and our lives lie? Asking ourselves these heart questions, discussing these with one another. Because it will be evidenced in our rhythms. It will be evidenced in our priorities. And for disciples of Jesus, our ultimate hope and consolation is in the king and the kingdom of God. That power that will transform our bodies and this whole world. This is our ultimate hope for healing and redemption. Everything else is secondary. And the way we show this commitment to and hope in the kingdom of God is through a life of dependent prayer. So church, I would encourage you to inquire with one another What is our prayer life like currently? This is not for condemnation, it's for recalibration. What is our prayer life like currently? Ultimately, we should be praying God's name, power, and glory to be known in all the earth. We should be praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven as our daily commitment to him daily moment to moment prayer and posture this should be the rhythm of disciples of Jesus If we are facing, as I said a moment ago, if it feels like things are just stacking up on us, we're finding faith difficult at this point in the journey. Could it be that we are needing fresh reserves of spiritual strength, needing to spend more time and more intensity in our prayers? And so I would add this question into your discipleship groups this week. How is your soul? If you've ever had coffee with me, one-on-one, you know that this is one of my favorite questions to ask. How is your soul? And I don't mean that in some like weird dualistic way, 
but how is your inner person? What's going on there? Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Are you burned out? As we often remind one another, Jesus offers us his yoke. Are we yoked up with him? So please add this to that discussion. Where, how is your soul? And let's point one another back to allegiance to, identity with, faithfulness to Jesus. And let's live that out in this time where the world around us is powerless, uh, filled with demonic presence. That we would be able to show them the person and power of Jesus through our lives. And not simply give them what everyone else is giving them, which is powerlessness. Despair. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do for us what we cannot do for our... And Lord, I believe I speak for many of us this morning. As we think about our lives... We push that out and we think about our families. We push that out we think about our friends and our places of work. We think about our own county, our state, our country. We think about the weight of the world that we often carry. Lord, we pray this morning... We believe. We believe that you have the power. We believe that you are the Son of God who has come into the world. We believe that you died and that you rose again. We believe that you are seated at the right hand of power. We believe that your kingdom marches on. We believe that the gospel is the hope for all people. We believe that you are with us in each moment and every day. And we also commit our unbelief to you. Jesus, we want to be all in. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that this morning. That you would turn our eyes upon Jesus. That we would surrender everything that we would, if, if need be, recalibrate with him this morning. Be yoked up again. And take upon his burden that is light. And that we would find that rest for our souls. Because the power lies with you. The hope lies with you. And so now, Holy Spirit, even as we turn towards Jesus in worship, we pray that this would be an opportunity for us to surrender, to again confess, because the word has searched us out. It has searched out these things that are inconsistent with you, with faith in you, with what you have done, what you have accomplished. Lord, root those things out and lead us in the everlasting way, we pray. We ask this in your name. Amen.